Some good news and some bad news. What do you want to hear first? <laughs> bad news, well, for me, the bad news is I was wrong about the oak trees. Yes. The good news is that um, a lot of the trees, a lot of the oak trees, most of the oak trees that have been denuded of leaves, which look dead, um, are being subject to a, a cyclical process uh, that happens with the live oaks here in California, where the um, every every eight to ten years the uh, caterpillars, uh, as part of the caterpillar moth cycle, um, devour the leaves. They completely denude the trees of every single leaf, and then leave this pile of stuff around the base of the tree, which you may have noticed kind of crunchy. And so with the healthy trees, which is hopefully most of the trees we'll find out, um, generally come back to life the next year. They just grow, they regrow their leaves. So, um, so I apologize to those of you who I uh, unnecessarily and prematurely upset you. <laughs> And maybe turned your joy afternoon into a suffering afternoon. <laughs> um, but you know, your prayer, your prayers were an- my prayers were answered <laughs> very quickly. <laughs> so, Mimaho, thank you. So, I'm going to read a story. It's one of my favorite nature stories. It's about, uh, it's called The Acorn Planter, and it's from this delightful little book, I forget the name of it, um, about this man who comes across this uh, old man. Uh, he's, he's hiking in this desolate landscape of, uh, in the Alps of France, and he comes across this man, this bent-over old man, a relatively old man, um, who's digging and planting. And so the story goes like this. He says, I came across a, va- a vast stretch of barren land, desolate, forbidding, and ugly. It was a kind of place you hurry away from. Then suddenly I stopped dead in my tracks. In the middle of this vast wasteland was a bent-over old man. On his, on his back was a sack of acorns. In his hand was a four-foot length of iron pipe. The man was using the iron pipe to punch holes in the ground. Then from the sack he was carrying, he would grab an acorn and put it in the hole. Later the old man talked with the traveler and told him, I planted over 100,000 acorns. Perhaps only a tenth of them will grow. The old man's wife and son had died, and this was how he chose to spend his final years. I want to do something useful, he said. Then 25 years later, this not-as-young traveler went to the same area. What he saw amazed him. He couldn't believe his eyes. The land was covered with a beautiful forest two miles wide and five miles long. Birds were singing, animals were playing, and wildflowers perfumed the air. The traveler stood there recalling the desolation that that once was, and now a beautiful oak forest stood there, all because somebody cared. And the story goes on, it it doesn't stop there, that um, he didn't just plant oaks, he planted uh, all kinds of other uh, deciduous trees and pines and firs and, and then planted a much larger forest over time, and then people started coming back to the area. It was an abandoned area. People had left the farms and the villages, and because of the, the, um, the revival of the land, people started coming back, and farms started, and this whole community developed around this once barren area. So it's a really beautiful story, and one that, you know, there are many stories that Spring was pointing to in her talk, there are many stories of revival and regeneration and conservation and restoration and although things can look quite bleak, there's also a lot of cause for joy and for, for, for hope and for celebration. And in that vein, I want to read in something else. Um, so, you know, in this retreat is like life. Uh, we've, you know, we've taught various practices, love, compassion, the meeting suffering and now joy. And you've no doubt been on, you know, your own roller coaster of those practices, both heart opening and painful and difficult and boring and, and beautiful and delightful. 
and the point is to be able to meet and, and work with all of it. Um, and particularly uh, in, in cultivating the joyful side of practice today with the mudita practice, um, sometimes we can feel it's hard to open because we feel loyal to our grief. We feel loyal to our sorrow. We feel loyal to our suffering. We feel like we're betraying those other people who have you know, great suffering. But it's really important uh, to develop a capacity for, for the heart to open and for, to develop joy because it helps us deal with the suffering of the world. And this is a poem by the, the great poet Jack Gilbert uh, called A Brief for the Defense. It speaks to this. Sorrow everywhere, slaughter everywhere. If babies are not starving someplace, they are starving somewhere else, with flies in their nostrils. But we enjoy our lives because that's what is asked. Otherwise, the morning before summer dawn would not be made so fine. The Bengal tiger would not be fashioned so miraculously well. The poor women at the fountain are laughing together between the suffering they have known and the awfulness in their future, smiling and laughing while somebody in the village is very sick. There is laughter every day in the terrible streets of Bombay and Calcutta. And the women laugh in the cages of Bombay. If we deny our happiness, resist our satisfaction, we lessen the importance of their deprivation. We must risk delight. We can do without pleasure, but not delight, not enjoyment. We must have the stubbornness to accept our gladness in the ruthless furnace of the world. To make injustice the only measure of our attention is to praise the devil. To make injustice the only measure of our intention is to praise the devil. So I do want to talk about joy tonight, and I want to talk about that uh, place of joy, happiness, and this quality of mudita, of rejoicing in the happiness of another, as part of our lives, an important part of our practice, of our, uh, the way we move in the world. And you know, as, as dour and as difficult and as serious and as somber as everybody looks here at times, uh, as I mentioned earlier when we were moving, that's not the point. <laughs> And the point is enlightening, is unburdening our load, is to free ourselves up from misery, from, from suffering, from despair, from sorrow, and to discover and to abide more in states of well-being, of ease, of contentment, of happiness, of joy, of peace. Not that it's always going to be that, because that's not, that's not, life's not like that, but a general shift in that direction to opening to those states of heart. And there's a lot of joy in this life. And there's also a lot of sorrow. And it's, it's always interesting to see wh where do we place our attention, just as, as Jack Gilbert was pointing, where, where, what, what kind of filter do we have and what, what do we see? What do we want to see? Where do we focus on? Do we focus on the dead trees or do we focus on also the, the, re the regenerating life that's around us. So it's a, for me it's been a practice of inclining my mind, inclining the mind towards that which is also beautiful, that which is uplifting, that which is nourishing uh, and joyful. So people have been mentioning that their benefactors are often dogs and I think that's true. I think dogs are here to, I don't know if they're here, but they, one of their roles seems to be is to cheer us human beings up. A friend of mine has one of those labradoodles or something, those little things that sit on your lap. They look like they look like teddy bears more than dogs, and it's just the cutest, happiest thing. And it's just it's it's hard to it just it just you can't be in your misery when you're around this dog. And I remember at IMS at the sister center, there's a dog there. It's not there so much anymore. And the the meditators would do this long walk around the lake, and there's often you know. You know Dozens of people walking around the lake at any time. And this dog would just, he wouldn't care who he was walking with. He'd just go on these laps with different people. And like every person was like the Buddha. Like he was just like, oh, the best thing, another walk around the lake. Oh, great. <laughs> oh, I wanted to play this thing. I forgot my laptop. Um, someone sent me this clip, this YouTube clip. You can check it out when you go home. There's, just punch in uh, Explorer 
South Pole finds food. And so what it is, is this video, he's been 86 days trekking across the South Pole and he's picking up his last food stash, which he buried in the snow, and he'd forgotten what he'd put in there. And 86 days, he thinks five days in here is challenging, but 86 days in the cold, you know, minimal food, probably dehydrated, weird stuff. And suddenly he gets his food, which is a lot more um, juicy than just the dry food he's been living on. And he, and so the camera's on him, and he, and he finds there's a packet of potato chips or something like that. It's in German or Norwegian, I can't, I can't work out the language. And he just screams with laughter <laughs> for like three minutes. He says, laugh, he throws the bag up in the air, oh! <laughs> and then Bob Candy, oh! <laughs> You know, that simple joys in life, you know. So sometimes a little deprivation helps. You know, when you leave here, you'll be like, oh, pizza, oh, cappuccino. <laughs> Even, oh, Facebook, oh, I didn't know it was so good. <laughs> I used to hate it. <clears throat> I was teaching a retreat here, in, I think it was a meta retreat. Oh, I think it was a meta retreat. And uh, some couple of years ago, and during the retreat, there was some kids program or a school was visiting or something. And so all these kids came up, you know, they were maybe like in a kindergarten or first grade and, you know, just this bubbly, loud, rambunctious, silly, playful, you know, we're all here, you know, trying to be happy and peaceful and maybe well. And, and they're just like so spontaneously just full of that de viva and playfulness, and it's like, oh, that's 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 what we're trying to get back to. <laughs> it's like Picasso it took him all his life to paint like he was a kid. So we have this within us, you know, as we've been saying, and really our job up here is to remind you and to help you see what's already within you, that these jewels of love, like the Hopi story of love, of compassion, joy, they're within us. You know, sometimes they're not as accessible as others. And these practices are like um, keys, you could say. They're code to how to unlock the heart, how to access these states of well-being a little more easily. You know, you're sitting in traffic and you're... And you remember, oh, I could say meditate myself because I'm miserable. Oh, may I be happy? And then you look across to the other people like, they look pretty miserable too. May you be happy? And suddenly it's like this love fest. You know, may we all get together, may we all get to where we're going on time. We realize, oh, I'm traffic too. I'm traffic to the person behind me. We're all in this together. And what the practice of mindfulness does is it integrates with these qualities is, it, it, is it's like the central key. Because we have to be present, we have to be here to know joy. We have to be, like to be outside today in the senses with nature. You have to be present. You have to be present to win, so the saying goes in Vegas. We have to be there, you have to show up for it. You have to be, know how to be present, not lost in your coconut. And I think in the, one of the reasons I want to hear in a moment what, how your time out in, in nature was, one of the reasons we, we sent you out there was because it, it is what gladdens the heart for so many of us, if not all of us. It's hard not to be touched by beauty, by the forest, by animals, by the light. You know, it's just, and it's, and it's accessible. It really is. Maybe not if you live in a big city, but there's always somewhere where you can see some natural elements, the sky, the sunlight, the wind. It's not as far away as we think. This is from... Mary Oliver again, the great nature poet, she writes, it's about the sun. And I love it when poets talk about something so everyday and ordinary and yet so sublime. She says, have you ever seen anything in your life more wonderful than the way the sun every evening relaxed and easy floats towards the horizon and into the clouds or the hills or the rumpled sea and is gone and how it slides again out of the blackness every morning on the other side of the world like a red flower streaming upward on its heavenly oils, say on a morning in early summer at its perfect imperial distance. And have you ever felt for anything such wild love? Do you think there's anywhere in any language a word billowing enough for the pleasure that fills you as the sun reaches out 
as it warms, as it warms you, as you stand there empty-handed? Or have you too turned from this world? Have you too gone crazy for power or for things? You know, and so um, I, I know the times when I've been out in the cold, especially when I've been camping. I was out camping last week uh, up in the mountains, and I didn't quite study the weather forecast, and I kind of missed that there was a chance of heavy rain and snow. And um, so I got soaked and snowed in. And I woke up and there was this huge weight of snow on the tent. And but the next morning the sun came up and it was freezing. But and, and I felt that absolute adoration for the sun, you know, coming over the hills and warming, thawing the fingertips. Sometimes we need to remember such simple pleasures. One year I was leading a, a kayaking trip. I do these meditation and nature retreats, as I mentioned. I was doing a kayaking retreat down in Baja, which I do every year. And we do these floating meditations out in the Sea of Cortez, and we just float and see what happens. Sometimes dolphins come. And this year we heard um, this uh, very large whale, because I had this very large... when they surface, you know. And it was a long way away, but it was still loud. And we just sat floating there, and it kept coming closer. <laughs> Not like, oh, like that. And closer and, cl- and you could tell that we were in its path, and every you know every so often it would surface, and then it was about two hundred yards away, and I was like, oh, the next time it's going to surface, <laughs> we started backpedaling, backpedaling, <laughs> and then it came up right in front of us, you know, safe distance away because it was a it was a finback whale, which were about one hundred and ten feet long, and it's just you know it's about I don't know how 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 like twice as long as this room. I mean, just inconceivable. Um, and uh, we were just st- sat there in stunned awe and reverence. You know, when, when the heart's open touch, we feel reverence. So this can happen, but we have to be present, and the heart has to be open, and mystery reveals itself. So what did you discover today when you were out in nature? Anybody like to say what, what, um, what joys arose? Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It'll be easier tomorrow. So uh, the comment was that um, she was having a hard time with the moths. There were so many moths around the trees, and I talked about the oats being part of the cause of the oak tree uh, demise. And I was having trouble with the moth too. <laughs> Go home. <laughs> Maybe happy somewhere away from here. <laughs> what else? Yes. Uh huh. Uh huh. Nice. So she noticed. So a, a little lizard jumped on her and. Idea of being considered a part of nature. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah. Yes. I think for me, nature always makes me think of my childhood being a kid and being outside. And I don't know if that's for everybody, but mm-hmm. it definitely towards that childhood. So, mm-hmm. brought back the childlike wonder. Yeah. yeah. How many was that true for people? Like, brings back that sense of childlike awe. Yeah, nice. Anything else? What else did you notice? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it was pleasant, but it was also kind of like that weird tension of like, I'm not a vegetarian, and I still don't plan to be. I wasn't like that weird by it. <laughs> 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 I started thinking about like veganism and like identifying with the prey, and then I was I went into like duality and like, but I identify with the prey and the predator. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so noticing this connection with the turkeys and then also the compassion and then knowing that she's not a vegetarian and that whole, you know, the dilemma, you know, when we, when we get close to beings, then we have more, there's, there's, it's more real, it's more alive, that, that question, which is good, to, it's good to feel that paradox. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to share, it wasn't this afternoon, but last 
last night, um, after the meditation, I walked up to the platform and was looking at the stars, and I just, um, you know, felt such a strong connection with the stars and upwelling of joy, and found that I really wanted to share that with someone, you know, not necessarily even having them there, but just, like, I just wanted to say to someone how great it was, what a great experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The beauty of the stars. Yeah, take some time, like Shada said last night, to go out and you know, lie down. The, the, all Some of the, the stone pavings are warm still at night, and you can lie down and just look down at the stars. So, you know, and, and as, as the days go on here at the retreat, you know, make use of nature as a support for the heart, you know, the uplifting of the heart. You know, really drink it in. It's a beautiful resource here and elsewhere. Many other beautiful ways that joy shows up in life, um, including being a parent and being a grandparent. I was riding, uh, took a bike ride with a friend of mine who's a dad of twin boys. It was not the easiest of times when they were young. He he would definitely admit to me. Uh, But now they're in their 20s, and um, he's an outdoor wilderness kind of guide, and so are his sons. And he was telling me the story of... um, that his son, you know, he does these he, he ski patrols in the winter and he does kayaking in Mexico in summer and he's, his dad's taking him to kiteboarding camp just for the fun of it. And, and his wife said to him, do you think we're enabling his, um, you know, his pleasure-seeking, like, shouldn't he get a real job? <laughs> and I was like, well, no, why not support someone who's living their dream, which is being outside in nature? So other, other ways that we experience joy, and just take a moment to reflect for yourself, the ways that touch you in your life that, that, that bring joy. There's a lot of research done about the, the happiest people are the people who have really thriving friendships and stable friendships and also enduring communities. There's some sense of connection with others is one of the most stable supports for joy. And also laughter. As Wavy Gravy said, if you don't laugh, it just ain't funny. I, I go to the, we have this comedy club in my town, and I go uh, regularly to laugh. It's like laughing medicine. It's like, it's like the best prescription ever for depression, you know, and sorrow. And um, I don't know why more people don't go. It's like you just go and you laugh for two hours. It's like it's great medicine. But different joys have different people have different different joys and different capacity and different interest and one man's joy is another man's poison. So it's important to know what brings us joy. I remember when I was writing my book, Awake in the Wild, and I was working really hard and I was teaching and writing and not having much fun, not getting outside, which is my usual pleasure. And a friend of mine said, You know, how are you doing? I said, Yeah, I'm pretty kind of grim. I'm just working and working and you know how that is. And he said, well, what are you doing for fun? I said, well, nothing. I've got no time. I've got to write and I've got to work. And, and he said, well, you know, what I, I always try and do one joyful thing a day. I said, that's a great idea. So I, did, I committed to going out and hiking every day as part of, because I was writing this book on nature. I should get out and actually, you know, experience it. And it was a time of year when it was just torrential. We get some sometimes really intense rains here for those of you who don't live locally. And, and it was a, one of those winters that rained for like two months straight, just at the beginning of... Uh, this period, and I went out every single day, I put my rain gear on, plastic, and or whatever, the, you know, and I just, you know, waded through, you know, sometimes stream beds and overflowing rivers and uh, creeks, not rivers, um, and it was just, it was so enlivening to my soul, and it was, of course, it would also help write, write the book. So to, to find what it is that brings us joy, because sometimes I hear this a lot, when I'm working too hard, or you know, I, I have to do all my chores before I do, before I do things for myself, right? Does that sound familiar? You've got to get all the work done and do all this, and then there's no time left, or you're too tired, right? So you watch you know, a bad movie at night or something, I mean, it just puts you to sleep. Um, so, to, so to make some priority for, for joy, to, that, that, it's, that it's an essential part of our, our well-being. So to think, you know, what brings you joy? Is it art? Is it music? Is it creativity? Is it nature? Is it exercise? Is it service? Is it giving and helping? Where do you get your nourishment? So the Buddha 
um, one of my favorite lines of the Buddha, he said, whatever we frequently dwell and ponder upon, that becomes the inclination of the mind, that becomes the inclination of the heart. So we want to know where we're inclining our mind, where we're inclining our attention. So when I first heard this practice, in, when I was, this is in the early 80s, I was living in the East End of London, which was very run down, pretty poor, and, and England was going through a depression. So it was pretty bleak. And I was at college, and it was gray, and I wasn't really liking being in a big city. And, um, but I heard this, and so my mind was focusing on the dirt and the negativity and the, the, the racism and the, and the oppression. Just, it all seemed really, really negative. And, um, but I was like, oh, inclining the mind towards maybe I can shift my, my negative bias, my perceptual bias towards seeing the problem. So being a nature boy that I am, I started looking for nature. You know, there's a few trees surviving in the smog and the park, a little grass is growing up between the cracks in the pavement and the birds, the few birds that would come through the city. And, and it was just a little moments of joy, little like, oh yeah, there is, there's, despite all the gray, there's, and there's also people being kind to each other and people being warm and friendly and shopkeepers smiling and uh, sometimes. And in London, you know, it's... Um, and so it was a practice. Like, oh, and it's like, oh, and I began to see that this really, depending on where I place my attention, affects my sense of well-being, my sense of happiness. You know, they say um, it often takes in, in conversation when giving feedback to people, it takes one, it takes uh, five positive statements to uh, counteract a negative statement. Some, some people, some researchers say, th- some researchers, researchers say three, but sometimes five. And so, same with our attention. We, we have to. It, it takes a lot to to swing the compass of our ship towards the positive. Sometimes relationships are a great source of joy. Sometimes they're a great source of suffering. Usually, a bit of both. I was listening to. I was at a conference this weekend called "Being Human," um, which is a great idea for conference and studying how to be human as opposed to being human. But anyhow, it was an interesting conference and um, there was a woman who'd done wonderful longitudinal research on, on, on romance and uh, particularly on dating and now online dating. Um, and she mentioned this phrase about um, how the, one of the factors for long-term stability in relationships and endurance of relationships was a perceptual blindness. And the perceptual blindness was to the faults of the partner. That you you know you acknowledge that there's faults and problems with your partner, but you just don't give them a lot of weight. You focus on what's okay, what's positive, and that was actually seen to be a, a really strong factor for enduring relationships. And this is not new. Shakespeare wrote about this in the whenever the 16th century. He says, "Love to faults." He's talking about love. Love to faults is always blind. No, love. Love. To faults is always blind, always is to joy inclined. Lawless, winged, and unconfined, and breaks all chain from every mind. Isn't that beautiful? Love. To faults is always blind, always to joy inclined. Lawless, winged, and unconfined, and breaks all chains from every mind. That's beautiful, like the whole practice right there. And then the, the joy that comes through our practice, through our meditation, through our clarity, through the wisdom that arises, through our disidentification. When I, and I mean, when I say disidentification, I mean when we, when we, when we establish ourselves in awareness, <clears throat> when we have that space, that, that, that little bit of distance between ourselves and our experience, when we see our mind and the, uh, what did you call it, the lunatic, um, the crazy people in our minds, and we, and, we, and we, with mindfulness, we take a step back and we see, oh yeah, that's actually not who I am. It's just my crazy mind. I don't have to believe it. I don't have to buy into it. That's liberating. Yeah. Same with our emotions. We, when we have awareness with emotions, we can see the awareness is like the sky, and these storms of fear and and hostility and anxiety and and pain they come and go, and we see we can hold it. We can hold it with a compassionate awareness. That's the the fruit of our practice. It's very freeing. It means we can become fearless with our experience. This is from the wonderful Japanese poet Issa. He writes, this is when he's pointing to this sense of the expanding sense of self that can happen as we practice. He was a, he was a, 
Buddhist practitioner, he said, if I expand the sense of who I am anymore, I will break into cherry blossoms. If I expand the sense of who I am anymore, I will break into cherry blossoms. He's also the poet who wrote, in the cherry blossom shade, there is no such thing as a stranger. In the cherry blossom shade, there is no such thing as a stranger. That's meta, right? There's meta, which is, you know, gentle rain, equal to all. That's the heart of compassion. It's non-preferential in its, in its, in its potential, which we can taste at, at times in our lives. The Dalai Lama, who's this, you know, as we've mentioned, is a great beacon of these qualities, um, was giving a talk in New York Central Park some years ago. And it was one of the big talks. There was 250,000 people showed up. It was when he sort of, you know, just went platinum or something, you know. <laughs> and um, there were, I think people were surprised how many people showed up. Anyhow, so he began telling his life story. And, you know, and he had a difficult life. He was raised in difficult conditions, forced to be the head of his country at the age of 16 or 17. Um, and, uh, you know, it's a rigorous monastic discipline. Um, and then, of course, the Chinese invasion and the brutality that happened and all the, the pain that he's witnessed through the years, greeting the refugees coming out of um, uh, Tibet. And um, so he, he chronicled all these stories, and then, it, then they stopped, and then he said, and he laughs, as the Dalai Lama laughs, he said, but I'm pretty happy. ha, 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 ha. And you're like, what do you mean? You've gone through the suffering and pain, and people, you know, people are being killed and tortured in Tibet. And, but I'm basically happy. And the, his heart of compassion is what allows him. It's like this great ocean, allows him to hold the pain and not be not be mired in it. The wisdom and the force of the wisdom and compassion allows him to ac- access joy. He's always laughing, and as Spring said, always being touched by sorrow too. Beautiful heart. When I was in India, Shadu and I, uh, we went to see this wonderful teacher and studied with him for some years, um, uh, teacher Punjaji. And uh, it was a wonderful Indian man in his, by then, probably late 70s or even early 80s. Big, powerful, very free in his mind and heart. And his expression of liberation was laughter. He would just laugh and, and celebrate and give these beautiful teachings and just laugh at the way that we thought we were you know, enslaved. He said, what, what, what do you mean? Who, who's the one that's suffering? Who's the one that's, that's in bondage? It's only your mind that believes you're not free. See through the mind and you see that freedom is already here. And he would laugh and laugh. And just delightful to be around that sense of freedom and the joy that comes from liberation, from being, from being unfettered or unbound. This is from Walt Whitman, who is also another great uh, writer and poet and seemingly very free being. He writes in Leaves of Grass, which is just an exclamation of the awakened mind in my book. He says, You, earth and life, till the last gleams I sing open mouth of my soul uttering gladness, eyes of my soul seeing perfection, illustrious everyone and everything, illustrious what we name space, illustrious the mystery of motion, illustrious the attribute of speech and the senses, illustrious the passing light, illustrious the pale reflection on the moon in the western sky, wonderful to depart, wonderful to be here, to speak, to walk, to see something by the hand, to prepare for sleep, for bed, to look on my rose-colored flesh, to be conscious of my body so amorous, so large, to be this incredible God that I am. How wonderful I celebrate you and myself. O amazement of things, even the least particle, O spirituality of things. (sighs) (laughs) And it goes on and on for a multitude of pages. Exclamation of joy and wonder and rapture at this life and this body and this connection and we're all of it. Song of myself, he says, song of myself. We are all part of it, not separate. This is the Buddha talking about rapture. So in deep meditation, the stages of absorption, which um, uh, are accessible when we, when we develop the practice of concentration. 
and they go from states of contentment to rapture, to bliss, to profound calm, to equanimity, and then infinite expansive states of mind. And this is the Buddha talking about um, the second stage of this absorption. He says, the meditator enters and remains in this deep meditative absorption. He permeates and pervades and suffuses and fills this very body with the rapture and pleasure born of composure. There is nothing of his entire body unpervaded by rapture and pleasure. Now, if that's not going to make you practice in meditation, (laughs) I don't know what is. He fills this very body with the rapture and pleasure born of composure, born of concentration. There's nothing of his entire body unpervaded by rapture and pleasure. Right? So somehow, sometimes we get the notion that somehow it's not okay, maybe it's for, through our Judeo-Christian conditioning, it's not okay to feel pleasure in the body. It's not okay to feel delight. It's not okay to feel rapture. But in this, in this path, there's a, there's a place for developing that. You know, in the monastic tradition, there's a strong emphasis on developing these, these, these deep states of mind because they, they teach us about where the real source of pleasure is, which is within our own being, our own mind, our own awareness. And so it actually reduces the, the pull of other sense pleasures in the world because we, we know this pleasure and contentment in our own being. And then there's the, the joy that comes from letting go. There's the joy that comes from the wisdom of not holding, of seeing it doesn't, it doesn't serve us to hold on. The joy of letting go. The Buddha talked about the joy of renunciation. And Blake put it this way, as you all heard this, I'm sure. He who binds to himself for joy does the winged life destroy. He who binds, he who attaches to things because it's pleasurable, does the winged life, does the free life destroy? He who kisses the joy as it flies lives in eternity sunrise. Can we enjoy the rapture in a meditation or the delight of seeing a deer or the sunset and then when it passes, let it go? Or do you go, no, no, I'm going to just stay here and I'm going to make it come back. No, gonna, don't ring the bell, you know. And of course that just makes it really run fast away. You know, we have to relax and then allow, and that, that it's because of the non-grasping that it allowed it to come back. This is from the poet Fleur Adcock. She's talking about the joy of letting go with aging. Anybody aging here? <laughs> I mean, what's interesting when you ask that question is like, people over a certain age say, yeah, I'm aging. But people under a certain age group generally say, no, I'm not aging yet. <laughs> Hello, people. (laughs) My face catches the wind from the snow line and flushes with a flush that will never wholly settle. Well, that was a metropolitan vanity, wanting to look young forever, to pass. I was never a pre-Raphaelite beauty, and only pretty enough to be seen with a man who wanted to be seen with a passable woman. But now that I am in love with a place that doesn't care how I look and if I am happy. Happy is how I look and that's all. My hair will grow gray in any case. My nails chip and flake. My waist will thicken and the years work all their usual changes. If my face is to be wet, weather-beaten as well, it's little enough lost for a year among the lakes and the vales where simply to look out my window at the high pass makes me indifferent to mirrors and to what my soul may wear over its new complexion. Now that I am in love with a place that doesn't care how I look and if I am happy, happy is how I look and that's all. Very beautiful, very wise. So the suffering of letting go, the suffering of holding on, the suffering of holding on, the, the, the release of letting go. There's a phrase I came across, it goes like this, don't cry because it's over, smile because it happened. Don't cry because it's over, smile because it happened. And it's always over and over and over. So there's the, that's the general sort of 
anger and joy, and then of course it's the joy that we've been cultivating today, the joy that's specifically about the, the appreciating the happiness, the well-being, the success of others, which of course is a, um, greatly expands our sense and capacity for joy. As the Dalai Lama said, it improves your chances of joy by seven billion to one. Right? Because if you, can, if you can genuinely be happy when other people are happy, there's a lot of people being happy around here. Right? So you can just be touched, you can be uplifted, you can be buoyed rather than feeling you know, jealous and competitive. And you know, Again, going back to uh, the teacher Punjaji, when he would be, he'd dialogue with students every day and we'd go and watch him dialogue for a few hours. And um, in, in, uh, very often, at least once a day, someone would be in dialogue and they would just have this profound awakening and they would just sort of, like the eyes would open and he would just laugh and laugh and he was so delighted that people, that this people could see through, the, see through the delusion and discover the truth and the freedom that brings. He would just, he'd just be so delighted, he'd just be in rapturous laughter, which was very contagious. So I was teaching a meta retreat on the East Coast some years ago. I do these every year at the Sister Center, IMS. And um, uh, it was actually the morning we were teaching Mudita. And uh, uh, my co-teacher, Gina Sharp, uh, had told me earlier at breakfast, she said, oh, I have this announcement to say. I said, okay, great, go ahead, say it in in the hall. And she said, uh, "I just want to say that I'm this morning. I'm the proud. Uh, I'm proud to say I'm a grandmother. I'm a new grandmother. My, my my daughter has just given birth to a child, and it was the first time she'd been a grandma, and she was very excited. And being up here, I get you know she's giving an announcement. I get to look at all the room. Right? There's a hundred people sitting in meditation, and they've all been doing meta, so they've been pretty you know the heart's pretty open, and they hear the Gina's delight. She's now a grandmother, and so the whole room just radiates with with mudita, with joy and appreciative joy. It's like that's that's mudita right there, and that just that innocent delight, just that being touched, and like oh how how lovely, how beautiful, how wonderful for you. Um, so very simple. Here's a story that I like that uh, expresses it. This is from uh, from an organization called, uh, well, you can access the organization through this website, servicespace.org, which is a wonderful organization that is devoted towards cultivating generosity. They just, they just did a, a challenge, um, 21, a 21-day kindness challenge, where you had to practice random acts of kindness for 21 days, and there was people in 80 countries did it, and um, thousands and thousands of actions of, of joy of, uh, were, were, were developed. My f- life currently requires a fair bit of travel, but I was definitely surprised by my latest flight as when I walked in, I realized that my ticket was in first class. This is seldom the case, and so I thought it must have been a courtesy upgrade due to frequent travel. I was traveling with my colleague and remembering a story I'd read a few months ago, I quickly decided I was going to offer the seat to someone else. I mentioned this this to my colleague and his response was to do the same. So together he and I made our way through the plane, smile cards in hand, I'll tell you what those are in a minute, looking for an unsuspecting person to tag. Towards the back we found a couple of unsuspecting younger folks and offered an upgrade. They jumped at the chance. Once we sat down in our new seat, the woman on the other side of the aisle looked at me aghast and asked, why would you give up the comfy seats of first class to strangers so you can sit back here in cattle class? I responded, so I could see a couple of people smile. And they're not strangers, they're family. She liked that answer. So smile cards is also part of this organization. When you do a random act of kindness, you, you can give, uh, you give people a smile card and it basically says, pass it on, pay it forward. Pass on the joy. So many, many ways to um, uh, enjoy, really. You know, and this is this is this. You know, f- for these people, they'll probably remember that. How many times do you remember sitting in a nice seat on the plane? Mm, you know, is that really a memorable memory? How many? How long will this memory be with these people? This act of generosity, and and just they're probably sitting back the whole trip in the back of economy class and just delighting these people are having a great time up in first class. You know, what a beautiful thing. Very simple. This is not complicated. So the Buddha said, 
the, the mudita liberates, he said it's the mind deliverance of gladness and it, and it liberates the mind from negative forces. And, and as we've spoken to earlier, the negative forces um, that so easily constrict when we don't feel like we're the recipient or the holder of the joy. And I'm just going to reiterate some of the things that I think are good to reflect on. Um, the, the, the heart of mudita is an appreciative heart. And I now use the word appreciative joy. Some people use the word sympathetic joy. Some people empathetic joy. Um, it's the heart that can appreciate beauty, love, delight, happiness, success. It's the heart, when we're touched by things in the world, I feel like that's a quality of mudita. So when I hear about the monarch butterfly that migrates from Mexico up the coast of California and back down again, it takes four generations of, butterfly, of a monarch butterfly from Mexico to get up to Northern California. It's not one butterfly, it takes four generations and somehow that genetic memory is passed on so they know how to get back up to Marin County, oh well, Santa Cruz actually, and then back down again to Mexico. That's eight generations for one cycle, one breeding cycle. Isn't that wild? And that, to me, it's just like, when I think about this, there's, there's a delight in, in, this, in that wonder. <clears throat> this is a, a line from a Mary Oliver poem about the poet William Blake, who was renowned to be quite an ecstatic and a mystic. And, and the poem, the line goes, oh, this is um, Blake's wife talking, oh, I miss my husband so, he is so often in paradise. <clears throat> and again, this is also from Mary Oliver, who you know, is clearly a, an ecstatic. She says <clears throat> in this poem about death, when, it's, when, she, it's, when death comes, and <clears throat> she writes, uh, when, it's all, when it's over, I want to say, all my life I was a bride married to amazement. When it's over, I want to say, all my life I was a bride married to amazement. I was the bridegroom taking the world into my arms. This to me is the, um, partly the, the quality of mudita that appreciates the joy that's in wonder, that's in awe of this world. So what's interesting to me is the Buddha did speak to, about this as the rarest of the qualities of the Brahma Viharas, of, of, of love, compassion, and equanimity. This appreciative joy is the hardest because of the egoic tendency to cling, to compare, to, to live in scarcity. The, the ego lives in scarcity, in deficiency. And so we're always hoarding and uh, uh, feel like we're in competition with limited resources. But there's great, there's wonderful places to put yourself in to, to let this, to have this, this uh, quality be triggered. So for me, one of them is watching children at play. There's just such a lot of natural delight and playfulness. And it's just, not always, by any means, but there's, there's just that, that innocence. Um, so, and, or, or watching the parents. Oh, look at Johnny. He's pooping again. <laughs> <laughs> You know, and it's just, you can't help, you know, it's, you can tease them and whatnot, but it, it's, it's, just, it's just a beautiful thing to see someone loving someone so unconditionally. It's a great thing. I was once teaching a course in here, and it was the end of the retreat. I was teaching with one of our friends and colleagues, Howard Cohen, and um, I'm very close to his daughter. I'm sort of the godfather, and her name's Molly. And um, <clears throat> so he'd been teaching here all week, hadn't seen much of her. And she was young, she was maybe five at the time. And the, the last day of the retreat, uh, Annie, her mom, and Molly came and stood by the back door while Howie was just giving the very end of the closing talk. And being five, she didn't care about the decorum of meditation and mm, meditation halls. And she just went, Daddy! And she runs down the aisle central t- and she jumps on his lap. <laughs> You know, and just like the whole room's like, oh, you know, that's that's mudita right there. So being around, you know, children. Um, one of the places I like to do it is at airports. And I may, often when I'm flying into Heathrow, <clears throat> I'll take some time by the the um, you know where people come out of an international airport, and then especially international because it's uh, Heathrow because it's so diverse. People coming from all over the world, from India and Africa and 
China and 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 you can tell that you know there's big family gatherings and 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 often probably people haven't seen each other for a long time so there's this incredible rapturous delight and it's just it's a great place to practice mudita just to, to feel the joy of families coming together who've been separated when i was teaching in india uh, which i did for some years in bodhgaya uh, we would watch pilgrims come the Bhutanese uh, would come and they would travel for three days, stand, they were so jammed tight, they, were, they would stand for three days in the back of a truck through like pretty cold winter temperatures. And they would, they would just to get to the, to the birthplace of the Buddha, the, the, the place the Buddha got enlightened, Bodhgaya, and to do their devotional practices. And they were so happy to be there. And, it was, and to see them walking around the temple and the grounds. And, just again, a lot of mudita for this is it's like it's like a once in a lifetime trip for some of these people to be at this the most important place that, for them in the world. So many places, and just to think about where 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 could you go that would, would put you put you in the firing line of mudita. It's a good thing to do. <clears throat> I was once again teaching this course down in Baja, and there was one <clears throat> particular woman who was very very. Um, uh, zealous about wanting contact with the dolphins and you know and nature doesn't care about what humans want I mean although there was this great New Yorker cartoon I'll digress for a moment so this New Yorker cartoon and uh, there's two dolphins swimming in the ocean happily and one says so you know so what's going to bring you to fulfillment like what's going to really make you happy and the other one says you know my, my dream in life is to swim with a with a middle-aged couple from Nebraska. <laughs> so, who knows, you know? I mean, anyhow. So, um, so I'm in, in Baja, and I'm, I'm out <clears throat> doing my group meetings with people, and, and this, one, this one yogi, this woman who was really wanting to see the, see the dolphins, she was out, way out, way out in a paddleboard. She was very athletic. And she was way out in the sea and just kind of standing still. And then the school of dolphins, part of dolphins, comes up and they, and they just play all around her paddleboard. And it was just so delightful for me to, you know, that's what she was wanting. And then and by luck and grace that happened. You know, so it can happen anywhere. <clears throat> this is from Oscar Wilde. There is something terribly morbid in the modern sympathy with pain. One should sympathize with the color, the beauty, and the joy of life. The less said about life sores, the better. This was in 1878 or whenever it was written. So, so much to say, so little time. So we've talked some about the, the obstacles, and so I'm not going to so much go into those. Um, I just want to speak a little to some more supports for Mudita, both here and when you go home. Um, and one of them is um, to, uh, to really work with the, the habit of uh, fault-finding. Fault-finding, comparing, judging. It's like the antithesis of um, Mudita. And it's so easy for us to do that. It's like, it's like a default mode of the mind to just to see someone and just find something of fault, slightly critical um, or negative. Uh, Joseph Goldstein, one of our teachers, he used to sit himself in the dining room at a perfect spot. He could see clearly everybody coming into the dining room. And he'd notice his mind would have a judgment about every single person. And he's not the only one. So to see, can, can we again shift, sh- incline the mind towards, notice that and then go, well, what else is here? Oh, this person looks really sincere. Oh, this person looks sad. Yeah. Or we have a meta-wish. Meta Practicing gratitude. Seeing what we have rather than what we don't have. So when we're feeling scarce and we're comparing and we're afraid that this person over there is like super ecstatic, is going to just, just suck all the joy out of the room like a, what's those things in Harry Potter, those big... The dementors, right? They suck the happiness and the life force, right? It's, we think, oh, they're going to take it away from me. And to realize it's just, it's a lot of it. You know, there's an abundance. 
So and when, we, when we practice gratitude, we see we have so much. Like right now, what do you have? You have this community and you have nature and you have safety and you have practice and you have good food and you have blessing and space to be here. What a joy. And then, pra- then, and, and then service. You know, that, that line from the Dalai Lama, we want others to be happy, practice compassion. You want yourself to be happy, practice compassion. There's a lot of data and research now coming out. The more we give, the more we practice service and generosity, what happens? It's, the, it's, it's one of the most powerful forces of happiness that we can create in our own mind, let alone helping other people. We also create a sense of well-being here. And the practice of generosity, simply turning our minds towards what can I give rather than what can I get out of the situation. Again, when we're inclining the mind away from our now self-centeredness, it brings a sense of buoyancy. The Buddha talked about living ethically. They called it the bliss of blamelessness. The bliss of blamelessness, when we're not caught up in remorse and angst and fear and regret about our past hurtful actions. What would it be? Imagine what it'd be like if you had if you had no regrets about your past. There's a certain peace and joy that comes. And one one small caveat about what mudita isn't: mudita is not happiness for someone who's getting joy out of harming another person. So sometimes that question comes up: What about the the happiness of Mussolini? Who seem to be statistically happy oppressing people, or who we know, we, you know, whichever person you want to put in that role, your boss, or um, uh, that's not. We're not celebrating that. We're not celebrating happiness that causes harm to another. So I'm going to close with a story because it's bedtime almost, and sometimes stories communicate much better than in words. Well, they're all words, but you know what I mean. So this is from Naomi Shihab Nye, wonderful Palestinian poet. It's called Wandering Around Albuquerque Airport Terminal, which I have done a lot of. After learning my flight had been detained for hours, I heard an announcement. If anyone in the vicinity of gate 4A understands any Arabic, please come to the gate immediately. Well, one pauses these days, doesn't one? Gate 4A was my own gate. I went there. An older woman in full traditional Palestinian embroidered dress, just like my grandma wore, was crumpled to the floor, wailing loudly. Help, said this flight service person. Talk to her. What is her problem? We told her the flight was going to be late, and she did this. I stopped to put my arm around the woman and spoke to her haltingly. The minute she heard any words of Arabic she knew, however poorly used, she stopped crying. She thought the flight had been cancelled entirely. She needed to be in El Paso for a major medical treatment the next day. I said, you're fine, you're fine, you'll get there. Who's picking you up? Let's call him. We called her son. I spoke with him in English. I told him I would stay with his mother till we got on the plane and would ride with her next to her, Southwest style. She talked to him. Then we called her, for, uh, then we called her other sons just for fun. Then we called my dad. And he, she, he spoke for a while in Arabic and found out, of course, they had 10 shared friends. Then I thought, just for the heck of it, why not call some Palestinian poets I know and let them chat with her too? <laughs> this all took about two hours. She was laughing a lot by then, telling, about, telling us about her life, patting my knee, answering questions. She'd pulled a sack of homemade mamul cookies out, little powdered sugar, crumbly mounds stuffed with dates and nuts out of her bag and was offering them all to the women at the gate. To my amazement, not a single woman declined. It was like a sacrament. The traveler from Argentina, the mum from California, the lovely woman from Loretto were all covered with the same powdered sugar. And smiling, there is no better cookie. And then the airline broke out the free beverages from huge coolers and two little girls from our flight ran around serving us all apple juice and they were covered with powdered sugar too. And I noticed my new best friend, by now we were holding hands, had a potted plant with something poking out of a bag some medicinal thing with green furry leaves. Such an old traveling tradition. Always carry a plant. Always stay rooted to somewhere. And I looked around the gate of late, and weary ones, and thought, this is the world I want to live in. The shared world. Not a single person in this gate, once the crying of confusion stopped, 
seemed apprehensive about any other person. They took the cookies. I wanted to hug all those other women too. This can still happen anywhere. Not everything is lost. So let's sit together for a moment. Inclining the heart towards joy. To an appreciative attitude of what's here right now. May all beings live in joy. for your joyous attention. <laughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.